continue tonight in our series, Heaven is Our Eternal Home, and the message is understanding what happens to believers at death. We're going to look at two main passages of Scripture tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and then also 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to make your way to the first, we'll be there here in just a few minutes. There's a show called the Philosophy Talk Program. I know it sounds riveting, but on that show there was a discussion with Richard Swinburne, who is a Christian from the University of Oxford. He's the author of Mind, Brain, and Free Will, along with the two hosts of the show. They said in part, the question of what happens to us after we die remains as mysterious now as it always was. Some think that death amounts to total annihilation of self. Others adhere to certain religious traditions which teach that the immaterial soul, and in some traditions the resurrected body, can ultimately survive death. So how are we to judge between these radically different views of what happens to us in death? What would it mean for the self to persist beyond the destruction of the body? And is there room in a scientific account of the mind for the existence of the immaterial soul? I told you in the last session that there's a lot of information as well as misinformation about what we can anticipate in the time to come. Uh, There is a lot of interest in the subject. I read that there's actually an art exhibit at a place called the Mize Gallery in St. Petersburg, Florida, for this month, and it's titled Afterlife. The gallery owner and artist Chad Mize uh, features work that explores what happens during and after death, not from a Christian or a biblical perspective. And he said the soul's journey after death is whatever you make it. It's your belief system. I would say that's probably one of the prevailing ideas that if you imagine it or you think it, then that's what your reality is going to be. Another artist by the name of Matthew Giordano has a piece on display called Lewis, which supposedly allows the observer to observe either darkness or light during the preceding stages of death. And he said, death comes for us all, either a sudden moment, a shock, or a slow, gradual process. And when one departs, what happens to the soul? His concept is that the observer of the art decides for themselves whether the soul is emerging into light, representing some idea of eternal life, or if it's dissolving into darkness, representing the idea of nothingness at the end. The focus for our study tonight is on understanding what happens, according to the Bible, Two believers at death. So far in our series, we've covered eternity past and the heavens, uh, then the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, and then the body and the soul. We looked in the last session at how each individual has a physical aspect, and this is the material part of our being, how God created man out of the most basic elements, out of the dust of the ground. And in doing so, he breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of people, and man became a living being. God also created man 
in his image and in his likeness. Uh, The human body, uh, therefore, should be valued and protected and ought to be used to glorify God. Each human being also has a spiritual aspect, and this is the immaterial part of our being. We identified that, generally speaking, as the soul. Now, I also told you that it's important that the Scripture highlights the unity of the human being. We're not thinking about some type of philosophical dualism or how the spirit is important, the soul of the person is important, but yet the body is not. The Bible and Christianity views the unity of the human being, meaning that each person is a unified person with body and soul living and acting together. That means that there is a unity between body and soul, and every act that we take in this life is an act of our whole person involving both the body and the soul. So there's not a strange separation or anything as long as we reside on this earth. We are one, having been created in the image of God in the totality of our being. Now the first truth I want to show you tonight is that the soul of the believer goes immediately to be with God at death. And I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to read the first nine verses. Beginning in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In verse 8, it says, in fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Now, it's interesting here that Paul leads in with the idea that there is something that we know. He follows the statement of we know by saying we have. Then he says we are always confident or we are of good courage. Now, how do we know something? We know what we know because God has revealed himself to us. We know what we know because God has revealed his word to us. And his word reveals to us who he is, who we are, how we can know him, and what he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. John Trapp wrote, not we think or hope only. He says, this is the top gallant of faith, the triumph of trust. That is, as Latimer the Puritan calls it, the sweet meats of the feast of a good conscience. 
There are other dainty dishes in this feast, but this is the banquet. Trapp's talking about the confidence of us being able to say, we know because God has revealed something to us. Truth is vitally important, and the reason that truth is vitally important is because it is directly connected to the nature of God, and truth connected to the nature of God speaks of our relationship with God. Now, make no mistake about it. The Bible places a premium on truth. The main words for truth in the Old Testament and in the New Testament correspond with that which is reality, or to say it another way, the accurate representation of facts. We also have a broader representation of truth, speaking of veracity, trustworthiness, sincerity, and authenticity. So truth is deeply theological because it is deeply connected to the character of God. God the Father is described in the Bible as the true God and as the God of truth who cannot lie. Jesus Christ, the Son, is described as being full of grace and truth, and he declared himself to be the truth. God the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of truth. Now let me state something here that I think is incredibly important, not only for the subject we're considering at hand, but also for Christianity as a whole. If I did not trust the Bible as being true and from God, I would not be a Christian. In fact, I would say that there would be no point. And to take it a step further, if we believe that our opinions and our version of morality override the truth of God's word, then we have put ourselves in the position of God while at the same time violating the very character of God as revealed in his word. And there are many so-called churches today that are nothing more than apostate religion, promoting false teaching in denial of not only what the Bible teaches, but of what the church has taught for some 2,000 years. This is important because God's self-revelation reflects his character, and therefore the word of God is entirely true. Now let's focus in for a moment on verses 5 through 8 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 8 is of particular interest from which I've drawn the point, while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now leading up to this, the scripture sets the stage for what is to come. It's indicated here that God has prepared us. Now that means that God is preparing us right now for our eternal destiny. So God who loves you, who redeems you, who sustains you, he is at the moment preparing you in your life for your eternal destiny. There is a connection here between our light affliction and the eternal weight of glory that we read about a little bit further down in verse 17 and 18. When trials and the circumstances of life on earth make life not easy, it makes it difficult for us to focus on our heavenly hope. 
So what the scripture indicates here is that God has given us his spirit as a guarantee. The way it's stated means that the promise of heaven is backed up with a down payment right now. The Holy Spirit, who is given as a guarantee, indwells each believer. A guarantee is a word which describes a pledge or a partial payment that requires future payments, but it gives the one receiving the guarantee a legal claim to the goods that are in question. And when you consider how great the down payment is that God has given us his Holy Spirit, then what that immediately does is it draws us in to an understanding of how great the whole gift will be. If the down payment is such that it's the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us upon faith in Jesus Christ, then that must tell us that there is far more even that God has in store for us. So Paul writes, we are always confident. He's saying we are always confident even in the midst of difficulties. He instructs us in Colossians 3 and verse 2 to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. We know about the blessing of life. We know about the life to come. And the blessing of life in the life to come helps us to deal with the burden of life in the here and now. Now, the Scripture does give an honest look at this because the Scripture indicates that in the meantime, we groan at the circumstances that we find ourselves in, meaning to sigh heavily from within or to be pressed down on the inside. And this life has a lot of troubles. All of us are going to face disease and infirmity and aging and death. So how do we navigate that type of burden? Well, we find the answer here. We walk by faith and not by sight. One translation says we live by faith and not by sight. So whether it's to live by faith or to walk by faith... It means we're not building our lives around things that are not eternally significant. We're living lives in light of the reality of eternity. And we are learning to fear God more than we fear people. And we're learning to fear God more than we could fear any circumstance in this life. And this requires faith on our behalf because we cannot see or touch the spiritual. There's a story told that's likely just that, a story, of a preacher who had lost his family in a tragic fire. So one day, he's walking through his city. His mind was troubled by questions related to faith, and in fact, because of the tragedy that he had experienced in losing his family, he was seriously thinking about quitting on the Lord if such a thing were possible. He wondered how a God, whom he thought was so good, could allow something so terrible to happen to him and to his family. And as he walked, he passes a construction site. And there was a huge cathedral that was being built. So he watches the men at work, and he notices one man carving a small triangle out of granite with a chisel and a hammer. 
The preacher calls out to the stonemason and he asks him what it is that he was making. And the workman stopped and pointed to a place near the top of the great cathedral. And he said, do you see that tiny open triangle near the top of the roof? The preacher said, yes. Well, said the workman, I'm carving this out down here so that it will fit up there. And in that moment, it said that the preacher understood better what God was doing in his life. That the Lord uses the difficulties and the circumstances down here to carve us and to shape us and to mold us and to grow us into the likeness of Christ so that we'll be ready for what he has for us when we're with him in heaven for eternity. Now, there's a time that is coming when we will no longer be absent from the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Verse 8 addresses the main question. What happens to believers when they die? Now, the false doctrine of soul sleep, which we've already addressed early in the study, is refuted directly by this verse. The false doctrine of purgatory, which teaches that the believing dead must be cleaned up through their own suffering and a holding pattern before coming into the presence of God, is also refuted by this verse. And we are presently absent from the Lord in the sense of his glorious presence and the fullness of it, but there's coming a time when we will not be absent from the presence of the Lord. Now, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 and following, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And of course, he was speaking to the church. Now, let me just ask you this question. How many people do you know, and I want you to think about this for a moment, who truly long for the presence of God in such a way that they would be anticipating joyfully the very idea of being with him in heaven? We see the total opposite. People scared uh, as can be of dying. People doing everything they possibly can never even to think about the subject. People don't even prepare for it. They don't even make good plans for their families that are going to be left behind because somehow they try to convince themselves, if I, if I just don't think about it and I just keep on going as fast as I can, it's not going to happen. Totally different idea and a totally different heart than what Paul exhibits here. Now, obviously, God is omnipresent. Uh, omni meaning all. He's everywhere. Uh, as a being who is beyond measure, God cannot be confined in any finite space. Uh, we, we understand when we're talking about being absent from the Lord, we're talking about being absent from his presence in heaven. Um, but when we say that God is omnipresent or everywhere, we're not saying that God is somehow immersed in the fabric of creation. That would be the view of pantheism. We are saying, rather, that God is spirit, and because God is spirit, he cannot be contained, and he is present everywhere at all times. 
Now, the attribute or the theological idea of a being being omnipresent is confined to God and God alone. There is no other being that has the capacity other than God who is spirit. And he is able not to be confined by anything that we could conceive of. In Jeremiah 23, in verse 23 and verse 24, it says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So God is everywhere in his creation all at once. He is not limited to one place because he transcends spatial limitations. There are mysteries to this, obviously, that the limits of our finite minds have a difficult time conceiving of, but it doesn't make the truth any less than what it is. Now, let me state further that the best part of heaven will be the fact that we will be with God. To be in the presence of God, who is in fact our maker, who has redeemed us, who has loved us and patiently sustained us all along the way, to be in his presence, that will be the greatest treasure of eternity. And as we'll see when we get to the flip side of all of this, the greatest horror of hell will be eternal separation from God. The presence of the Lord in heaven speaks to intimate fellowship. I think about Adam and Eve in the garden when they had intimate fellowship in the presence of God before the fall and before sin entered into the world. Sin has the effect of separating and uh, the indwelling presence of God comes to us today when we're reconciled with God and when we're redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. Samuel Rutherford said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven for me, for thou art all of the heaven that I want. To be with God, to know him, to see him, that is the central, irreducible draw of heaven. The best part of heaven will be enjoying God's presence in the fact that he will dwell among us. You remember Jesus defined the essence of eternal life in John chapter 17 and verse 3 when he said that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Sam Storms wrote, we will constantly be more amazed with God and more in love with God and thus ever more relishing his presence in our relationship with him. Our experience of God will never reach its consummation. It will deepen and develop, intensify and amplify, unfold and increase, broaden and balloon. A desire for heaven is a desire for the presence of God. I think about the account of Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles. Stephen, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, a man who was persecuted for his testimony about Jesus. The crowd was enraged at Stephen. And at one point, the Bible says that he gazed up to heaven. And in Acts chapter 7, in verse 55 and 56, it says that he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing 
at the right hand of God. Now, I want you to think about for a moment what was taking place. Stephen was about to be killed for his faith. He was being persecuted because he had stood strong for Jesus Christ and for the gospel. And in that moment, Jesus is preparing to receive him into his presence so that somehow he gave him the ability, Stephen as it was, to look up into heaven. And when he looked up into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God in a position of readiness. And the scripture says, he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then after that, they drug him out of the city and they began to stone him. And verse 59 says, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, this might seem familiar because this echoes the words of Jesus at the crucifixion when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Stephen died. So let me make this point and make it clearly. As it was with Stephen, the soul of the believer goes immediately to be with God at death. And that brings me to the second truth. The body of the believer remains on earth awaiting the final resurrection. The body of the believer remains on earth awaiting the final resurrection. Now when the soul departs for heaven... The body remains on the earth. And 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 compares our bodies figuratively to tents. Temporary structures which house our souls. And we groan in these tents. Again, we've looked at this because of the frailties of life. And the fact is, these bodies that we're in, these tents that we've been given... Uh, are in fact wearing out. Now on a humorous note, somebody said that you know you're aging when it takes you longer to rest up than it did to get tired. You know you're aging when most of your dreams are reruns. You know you're aging when your mind signs contracts that your body cannot keep. You know you're aging when you don't care where your wife goes as long as you don't have to go with her. You know you're aging when your knees buckle easily, but your belt won't. And you know you're aging when everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. If the tent is destroyed, there is a greater hope. And the greater hope is we have a house not made with hands. And the house not made with hands is eternal in the heavens. Reminiscent of the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The word for mansions in John 14 and verse 2 is uh, translated literally as dwelling places or uh, places to stay. And the focus now is on what happens to the body and especially the anticipation of the resurrection. So let's turn for a moment uh, to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I want to read several verses there that uh, I think will be helpful for us in the great resurrection passage. And I'm going to pick up reading in verse 35, and I'm going to let the Scripture speak for itself. 1 Corinthians 15 
in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now verse 50. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, we believe the gospel and we take our stand on it. The heart of the gospel is introduced in 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 3 and 4. In fact, I think that is the clearest synopsis of the gospel one of them at least, in all of the Scripture. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day. That's at the heart of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. He follows that in an explanation of the gospel by saying if the dead are not raised, generally speaking, then Christ has not been raised. And then he says, if Christ has not been raised then your faith is worthless. And he said, but Christ has been raised. Praise God he's been raised, and his resurrection is the first fruits. 
Now, obviously, the resurrection of believers is what the Bible has here in view. The physical body presently remains on the earth at death, awaiting the final resurrection after Jesus returns for God's people. At the resurrection, the physical body will be literally raised and reunited with the soul, having been made new. Now, I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts this. I want to read two short excerpts from it. It's a little bit intense, but I think you'll appreciate it. The souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory into the highest heavens. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in full, enjoying God to all eternity. And then the second section. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Now it is true here that the Bible does not give a great detail about what our glorified bodies will be at the time of the resurrection. There are, however, some helpful comparisons and contrasts that we just read. What is sown as perishable is going to be raised as imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is going to be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. What is sown in a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. So our glorified bodies will be imperishable, honorable, powerful, no longer subject to death or the sickness that precedes it, and the glorified body that God gives us will be suited for life in eternity. Further, I believe that we know that our glorified bodies will be like that of Jesus' body in the resurrection. If so, they will have form and solidity to the touch, just like the resurrection body of Jesus. We will be able to enjoy food, but not be driven by the necessity of it as we are in our earthly desires. I believe we will be recognizable as who we are, the essence of God, who God has created us to be in his image. And all of these will be characteristics of our glorified bodies following the return of Jesus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Salvation is not just for the soul or the spirit, but for the body also. Resurrection is how God saves our bodies. 
We have a glorious new body coming. The righteous are put into their graves, all weary and worn, but as such they will not rise. They go there with the furrowed brow, the hollow cheek, the wrinkled skin, but they shall wake up in beauty and glory. All the truths about the resurrected, glorified body that I've shared are about what ultimately happens. And now that brings me to the third point, point of truth. And I believe the soul of the believer will exist in a temporary body until the return of Jesus. The question is raised here, what happens between now and the resurrection when a person dies in the here and now? What happens in that period in between? Or to state it more directly another way, do those who die in Christ exist somehow in a, the state of a disembodied spirit or do they receive a temporary body uh, that is fit for the presence of God? Now let me be clear here so nobody thinks I'm going further than the scripture would go. Biblically, we cannot say dogmatically. We're not told with clarity the answer to this question. What we know is that from the time that believers die until the return of Jesus when he sets up his kingdom, each individual will exist in a conscious form in the presence of God. We will make a seamless transition from this life to the next. There are three main views that people hold about this particular idea. View number one I've already referred to as the disembodied spirit, meaning that the believer exists in a spiritual, immaterial state with no body. It's just the soul that exists in the presence of God awaiting the glorified body. View number two is that of a glorified body being received upon death, or meaning that there's no awaiting the resurrection of the dead. Now, I think we can dismiss this one outright because of the necessity and the timing of the resurrection as it's stated in Scripture. I think it clearly contradicts 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think there's any receiving a glorified body before the resurrection takes place. And then view number three is the temporary body that I am presenting, uh, but not necessarily holding to dogmatically. And that is that the believer has a temporary body while awaiting their glorified body. Now, I lean toward this uh, for a number of reasons. What are some of the evidences of an intermediate body? Well, it's unclear, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, If Paul is speaking of the future in heaven, however, he makes reference in 2 Corinthians 5 to being clothed in the fact that we shall not be found naked. So obviously he's referring to the idea that it's better for us to be found clothed, but then again, it's possible he's talking about the ultimate uh, conclusion of the whole deal, and he's not talking about Uh, if we die immediately now and go to be in the presence of God. Another example in Scripture, however, is from the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. You remember Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah. 
who apparently were in some type of human form, although their bodies had been buried centuries before that. So does that mean that that's normative? Or does that mean that God was doing something in that vision that was supernatural, pointing forward to the things to come? Well, either uh, transparently are possible. But I think a more solid case uh, would be found in the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. The place of suffering and Abraham's bosom are referenced, and there is a great gulf that is fixed in between. Now let's think about some of the things that are going on in this account that Jesus gives. Both the rich man and Lazarus are conscious. The rich man can see, so evidently he's got some kind of eyes. He has feelings and knowledge. He also has a tongue, at least figuratively speaking, because he's asking about uh, just a touch of water on his tongue. Both of them are recognizable. Lazarus can move. Evidently, he's got a hand because he's asking for him to use the finger that would presumably be on a hand and dip that finger in water and place it on his tongue. Lazarus also has feelings. And I think we can make at least a partial case for the fact that they had some type of intermediate bodies, temporary bodies, uh, while they're awaiting the final consummation of all things. And then finally, I would point to the dead, martyred, tribulation saints who have not yet received their glorified bodies, who are seen in heaven wearing white robes, uh, presumably over bodies in Revelation uh, chapter 6. And the bottom line of this all is we're going to be in the presence of the Lord and we're not really going to care. That's the real fact of the matter. It's interesting for us to talk about now and kind of speculate on. I don't think it does any violation to the scripture to speculate on it. It's interesting for us to think about and uh, to come to some type of conclusion on. But most importantly is the truth that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be in the presence of God for all of eternity, forgiven of all of our sins, all of our past behind us, but yet an eternity in front of us that's going to make everything else pale in comparison. One day, we're going to receive a welcome to eternity. And in that welcome to eternity, we're going to find out in that moment that death is not the end. And when we get that welcome to eternity, we're going to realize that all that we believed was in fact true. And while our soul will be separate from our body, we will not cease to exist. And every person created will spend eternity either with God or apart from God. You're probably familiar with the name Erwin Lutzer, who was a pastor at Moody Bible Church for many years, outstanding preacher, one of the early preachers that I listened to on the radio in some of my more formative years. And he wrote a little book, How You Can Know You Will Spend Eternity with God. 
And I share with you an excerpt from the beginning of that book. Five minutes after you die, you will either have had your first glimpse of heaven with its euphoria and bliss, or your first genuine experience of unrelenting horror and regret. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. In those first moments, you will be more alive than you have ever been. Perhaps vivid memories of your friends and your life on planet Earth will be mingled with a daunting anticipation of eternity. And then he goes on to say, no doubt, some surprises await all of us five minutes after we die, but it is much better to be surprised about the indescribable glories of heaven than to be surprised about the indescribable agonies of hell. You see, death is going to bring us closer to God than we have ever been before, but we don't have to fear it if we are in Christ. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life and your presence, God, is fullness of joy. Listen to this, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why in the world would a follower of Jesus Christ fear the promise of the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.